Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. I uh, used to work in the newspaper industry and I can remember many a conversation over lunch with a a colleague called Steve. Um, We'd often talk about the the most important matters of life. Uh, And then when we finished talking about the football, um, we'd talk about all sorts of other things, including what I believed as a Christian. And at the end of a somewhat animated debate, I'll never forget Steve's rather exasperated summary of his position. Paulie said, I'd believe in God if he were to come and stand in front of me, uh, and if I could meet him, uh, talk to him, and touch him, then I'd be convinced he existed. Uh, Through our One Big Question survey, we've received uh, similar comments. One person asked, uh, are you real? Another one said, are you there? I think that was on the on the, uh, the, 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 the video just now. And then someone else uh, said, um, and, and how can we know that you exist? Well, if we're going to believe in God, we want to prove his existence. Of course we do. And not least of all, because there are people around, like uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, the outspoken atheist of uh, the God delusion. People like Dawkins say we are off our head to believe there's a God. Uh, so where is the existence? Uh, where is the, the evidence for God's existence. Now, having mentioned uh, Dawkins, it's worth noting that that even Dawkins, and a more staunch atheist uh, you're unlikely to find, even Dawkins only talks in terms of probability. You'll perhaps remember the the famous uh, bus campaign of a couple of years back, where atheists raised money to have a, a slogan on London buses. Do you remember the slogan? There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Even the most staunch atheists will only talk in terms of Probability. So Dawkins writes, either God exists or he doesn't. It's a scientific question. One day we may know the answer. And meanwhile, we can say something pretty strong about the probability. A bit later in his book, he writes this. Reason alone could not propel one to total conviction that anything definitely does not exist. There's probably no God, he and other atheists say. Others would say there probably is. And uh, we could go down to the pub and have a, a good discussion about the existence of God. Uh, it's a, a terrific way to spend an evening. Try it sometime. Thrash it out over a, a pint and a packet of port scratchings. You'll, you'll have a fascinating discussion and a great evening, much better than staying in and watching Coronation Street. But ultimately, you'll get nowhere. At the end of the evening, it will be uh, nothing more than the sharing of opinion. Interesting, but never conclusive. At the end of the day, as you roll into bed, you'll, you'll come home from the pub thinking that there probably is, or probably isn't, a God. But here's the thing. Christians don't talk about the probability, but the certainty of the existence of God. And at first, it sounds terribly arrogant to say that, doesn't it? Until we understand the key word uh, for the Christian in this debate, and the key word is this word, Revelation. Christians uh, have a certainty in God's existence. And it doesn't come from their intellectual ability to reason. If that was it, it would be terribly arrogant. Now, our certainty comes because God has revealed himself, we would say, revelation. He has revealed himself, not our knowing, but his revealing. Christians believe God has done the very thing that people quite rightly were asking In our survey, again, one person asked this, why does God not prove his existence to the world? And someone else wrote on a card, why doesn't he show himself, literally? 
Well, this evening I want to demonstrate that he has. Now, I have a friend who's an architect who's uh, built his own house. Um, I'd love to take you to his home. It is amazing. Uh, I, I can't do that tonight, obviously, but perhaps in your mind's eye, you would come to me to his house for a moment. As we arrive, there's a note pinned on the front door telling us that he's, he's had to pop out and that the key's under the mat and to let ourselves in and make ourselves at home and that he'd be back soon. And when we get inside, we see a note on the kitchen table. It reads, welcome, great to have you. Make yourself at home. The coffee's on. Help yourself to a Danish. And we see a selection of, of delicious Danish pastries on the side. The note continues. I've just gone to buy some fresh orange juice for you. I know you love it. Take a look around the place while you wait for me. So we pour out some coffee. We grab a Danish and I take you on a tour of his house. It's an amazing place. And as we look around, it, it tells you a lot about my friend. It tells you how brilliant he, he is to have designed such a house how wealthy he is to to have afforded it, how ingenious, how meticulous he is with all the attention to detail. You'd be amazed at everything that you see. You could tell a fair amount about my friend from the house that he's created, but you wouldn't know much about his character just from looking at his creation. However, looking at the notes that he'd left, you'd begin to realise he's kind and thoughtful and generous. He's left us coffee and Danish pastries and went to get some fresh orange juice just because he knows I like it so much. Yes, you you could tell stuff about him, but but still there'd be things about him that you wouldn't fully know until he walked in through the door and then you'd have a chance to talk to him and ask him all your questions and then you'd know about him. Uh, the, The longer you spent with him, the more you'd know about him. Now the same is true of God. When we look at what he has built... Uh, the architect of creation, it tells us much about him. Indeed, in the Bible, uh, there's one verse in, in the book of Romans. It says this, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what, he's been, what has been made. Now, we can see what God is, lo- is like from looking at what he's made, looking at the creation all around us. Look at the creation and you see how powerful God is. It is so huge. Now, a friend of mine once asked me, why is the universe so vast? I've got to say, I didn't know how to answer the question at the time, but as I've thought about it, I reckon Romans 1 tells us the universe is so huge to show us how amazing God is. The creation tells us how powerful God is, and it tells us how ingenious he is. It's so detailed. I love going skiing. Uh, Every time I go skiing, I am blown away by the beauty of the mountains. I love looking across the valley and seeing hundreds of of skiers uh, going down the mountainside like little ants. And then it hits me how huge the world is. I found myself marvelling that this is just one mountain in a huge mountain range, which is just one valley in Switzerland, a, a small country in Europe, just one continent of the world. The sheer size of the creation astonishes me. And then when I consider the detail of it all, every snowflake different. That's what somebody said. I don't know how they know. But anyway, somebody says every snowflake different. And then there's this balance of creation. Francis Collins, the the American physician geneticist, noted for his leadership of the human genome product, says this. When you look from the perspective of of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc. We have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, 
the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets or people. Sir James Jeans, the famous British astronomer, once said, the universe appears to have been designed by a pure mathematician. Or look at the human body. The 75,000 miles of blood vessels in your body that carry blood to over 60 trillion cells. You're amazing, as the advert says. The sheer complexity of the creation tells us something about God. But I, I can't tell from creation whether God is a good God or whether he's a vindictive and capricious, mean and nasty God or, or kind and compassionate, loving and thoughtful. So yes, he's revealed himself in creation, but how do I know what he's like and, and whether I'd like to know him? Well, secondly, he's revealed himself in his word, in the Bible. See, as we went to my architect's friend's house Uh, You'll remember how he left notes around the house uh, and they told us things about him, that he was kind and thoughtful and generous. He'd thought about getting me orange juice and he'd bought us some danishes. He'd given us the key, let us get in, look around. Well, God has written about himself in the Bible and and, and the Bible tells us what he's really like. Uh, Christians believe that the Bible is no ordinary book, but that it's uh, inspired by God or, or better the word expired, that it has been breathed out by God, that it is actually his words. I can still remember when I first started reading the Bible as an adult. I'd heard Bible stories at Sunday school and in RE lessons, but when I started reading it for myself as an adult, I was amazed by it, how it made sense of life, how it explained why the world is as it is, how it explained why... I'm as I am. And look, I would, I'd love to tell you all the reasons why the Bible is historically reliable, why it's believable, why it's credible, why it's supernatural, but that really is for another talk. My point now is that God has revealed himself in the Bible. Read it and you'll discover the one true God who is really there. So God has revealed himself. This word revelation, it's not us working it out. He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in the Bible. But the supreme way that God has revealed himself is by him stepping into our world. Since my architect friend walked into the house, you could see him and talk to him and ask him questions and get to know him. My colleague Steve from my days in the newspaper business said to me, if I could meet God, talk to him and touch him, then I'd be convinced he existed. The amazing thing is that if Steve had been born in the right place at the right time, he could have seen God. If Steve had been born in Israel 2,000 years ago, he could well not only have seen God, but met God, talked to God, even touched God. That's what Christians believe. And that's ultimately why Christians believe that God exists. Because 2,000 years ago, he came down to this tiny blue-green planet and and walked among us. Uh, In our survey... Uh, Someone said they would ask God, can you prove your existence, please? Oh, very polite. I like that. Please. Well, Christians believe he has proved his existence in Jesus. I hugely admire school teachers. My brother used to be a teacher, and uh, whenever he was asked what he did for a living, he would say, I'm a pest control officer for the council, which I quite liked. Um, uh, Teaching is such a difficult profession. Now, that's why I love the story of the primary school teacher who went into school one Monday morning without much of a lesson plan, 
clearly lacking inspiration. She said, this morning class, we're going to do some painting. Uh, so get out on your aprons, get the paints out and, and begin. Uh, you can paint anything, anything you like. Uh, if you're not sure what to paint, paint what you did at the weekend. I don't really mind what it is, but paint. Uh, so the class began and after a little while, the teacher walked around the classroom looking over the shoulders of the pupils and uh, seeing how they were getting on. And there were all manner of paintings. There was uh, some of mummy and daddy and the dog in the park, others of them by the beach, many different scenes. But the teacher was surprised when she came to six-year-old Scott's painting. The paper was just a mass of colour. That's very nice, Scott, uh, said the teacher encouragingly. Uh, what is it? Oh, that's God, replied Scott. But no one's ever seen God, said the teacher, to which Scott replied, they have now. Uh, You see, that's what Christians believe about Jesus. No one's ever seen God. But when Jesus arrived on the scene, they have now. And if we'd been in the right place at the right time, we could have seen God in the flesh. It's a remarkable thought. Of course, most of us were not born in the right place at the right time, but all is not lost because those who were there at the right time have written down in the Bible what they saw to show us that Jesus really is God. And so for the last few moments that are left to me, let me show you from one section of the Bible, from from Mark's Gospel, why we believe that Jesus is God. And I've uh, put a a copy of Mark's Gospel on every seat. Uh, Perhaps you could just uh, find it if you've just sat on it or or dropped it down, if you uh, might like to grab hold of it. Uh, There are some, if there's a a spare seat in front of you, you'll find it in front of you. And uh, just a a very quick look at this one section of the Bible written by uh, one of Jesus' disciples uh, called Mark. Uh, written um, uh, very shortly after Jesus died. Uh, Just have a look and see how uh, Mark shows us that Jesus really is God. Mark tells us, you see, that Jesus had power over the creation. Now turn with me to page 10, if you will, in this little booklet. Page 10. It's uh, Mark chapter 4. And uh, we're going to look at verses 35 to 41, right on the Uh, bottom left-hand side of page 10 there. Uh, You'll see that um, uh, Jesus' disciples were in a boat and a huge storm threatened to sink the boat. The entire crew were were terrified. Um, It's interesting, these were hardened fishermen. They'd been on this this lake many times before, but uh, they were terrified. They thought they were going to drown, and just when they thought they'd had it, Now look at verse 39 there, the the top line of page 11. Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Now that is very impressive. Let me tell you, there have been a number of occasions when I wish that I could do that. I I can remember a a channel ferry crossing I I took before the the channel tunnel was built. Uh, Now look, I really don't like boats, but I like skiing, so I got on one. And as we drove onto the ferry, the crew were securing all the vehicles with ropes. Now, I'd been on ferries before, and they'd never done that before. Uh, I knew what that meant. The sea was really rough. So as everyone else headed off to the onboard restaurant, I uh, decided to camp just outside the toilets. Uh, I tell you, I felt so sick on that journey. When I could stand it no longer, I looked up at Caroline, my wife, and in a pathetic little voice, like a little boy in the back of the car, pathetic little voice, I looked up at her and said, Caroline, how much longer is it before we get there? Pathetic. And I will never forget the look on her face as she said to me, Paul, we haven't left the harbour yet. (laughs) 
I tell you, I used to feel so sick on those journeys. What I'd have done to be able to go up on the deck and command the wind and the waves, be still, stop. Of course, I didn't try it, no point. And if I had tried it, you'd have soon known that I wasn't just sick in my stomach. You and I can't control the wind and the waves, but Jesus did. Do you see it there? The storm stopped instantly. And so that we don't think that this was just a lucky break for Jesus, you know, really freaky but good timing, we read of other miracles that Jesus performed over nature. He fed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish, and he even walked on water. And so we have to ask ourselves the question that is there at the end of verse 41. Do you see it at the top of page 11, end of verse 41? Who is this? Who is this man who can control nature? Well, Jesus had power over creation. We also see in Mark's gospel that Jesus had power over sickness. Now read through Mark's gospel and you'll see over and over again that, that Jesus healed the sick. But uh, just one example, turn with me to page three uh, towards the beginning. Page three, this is chapter one and, uh, and verse 40. It's the bottom right hand page. Verse 40, a man with leprosy. Now, the ancient uh, equivalent of AIDS uh, a few years back was leprosy. Leprosy left people socially isolated and, and carrying around a death sentence in their bodies. And yet, verse 41, do you see it there? With just a touch from Jesus' hand, this man was healed. Verse 42, immediately. It is miraculous. Even a headache doesn't go instantly. Try, try taking your uh, pa- paracetamol when you get home. It takes a while. But here's Jesus faced not with a headache, but with an incurable disease, and it is gone immediately. Who can do this? Jesus had power over creation, power over sickness, and he had power over death. Now, so far, you may say, uh, so what to all this? So what that Jesus has power over nature? I'm not plan- planning on going on a- any cruises in the future. So what that Jesus has power over sickness? I'm not ill at the moment. But I don't think anybody can say so what to this, that Jesus has power over death. This matters to everyone. Death affects everyone, one way or another, sooner or later. And it is agony, isn't it, when it comes? So turn with me to page 13. It's the end of Mark chapter 5. Page 13. And as we uh, arrive uh, at this uh, part of Mark's Gospel, we see that Jesus was called to the home of a religious leader named Jairus. And the anguish that Jairus must have felt because his little girl had just died. Um, when, um, we, we have twins who are 11 now, but when uh, they were born, just three weeks after they were born, uh, Bethan, the, 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 the second of the two uh, twins of the two girls, uh, had a very distended stomach. Uh, And we took her to the doctor and and the doctor looked worried and I looked even more worried when the doctor looked worried and said, you really need to get her to the hospital. Now, as it turned out, she was okay, but I can tell you that for the next few weeks I was beside myself and at that moment it was terrible. And and so while my daughter has never died, I can just begin to understand what this poor fellow Jairus was going through. His little girl had died. And when Jesus arrived at his home, people were weeping and wailing. Do you see it there in in verse 39, about two-thirds of the way down on page 13? uh, People uh, wailing. He says, why all this commotion? 
And so Jesus asked them all to leave. And then do you see what happens in, in verse 41? He went into where the little girl was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. I bet they were. And again, this was no fluke, no one-off, no lucky break. Jesus raised others from death too. You see what we've got here. Jesus has power over creation. Jesus has power over sickness. Jesus has power over death. And, and Jesus had power to forgive sins. Well, turn with me uh, to page four uh, for this last little look at Mark's gospel. Uh, we're in Mark chapter two now, Mark four. Jesus has power to forgive sins, which might not seem a very big deal to you. But just see how the story pans out. Um, here a paralysed man is brought to Jesus. And see what Jesus said in verse 5, halfway down page 4. Verse 5. When Jesus saw the faith of those who brought the paralysed man to him, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins... It's a remarkable sentence. In saying Jesus could forgive sins, Jesus was claiming to be God. And the religious leaders of the day knew that that's exactly what he was doing. Look at their response in verse 6. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. Well, look, anyone can claim to be God. Anybody can go around saying that they're God. So look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man, which is one of Jesus' favourite phrases for himself, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. You can be sure they hadn't. Jesus healed the man to prove that he could forgive sins, to prove that he is God. And people were amazed. Of course, they'd never seen anything like it. And so who do you say Jesus is? Who do you think he is? Who is this man who controls nature, who heals the sick, who raises the dead to life, who forgives sins? Who is this man? Christians believe he is God. Here's why we don't talk about the probability that God exists, but certainty. Because God has revealed himself to us because he came down to earth and proved his existence. Now, I can imagine some sitting here listening to this and saying, well, that's all very interesting. But honestly, all these miracles, that, that's exactly why I can't believe. Well, I'd like to ask you, what, what would you expect if God were to turn up here on earth? What would you expect him to do? If someone to rush in here tonight and to say, I'm God, I'd say, prove it. And if he couldn't do something amazing, something miraculous, something out of this world, then I wouldn't believe him. And to use the words of the author C.S. Lewis, I'd put him on a par with the person who said he was a poached egg. Now, look, you can't have it both ways. If someone claims to be God, you, you can't demand that they do something miraculous to substantiate their claim. And then in the next breath, when they do something remarkable, say, oh, well, I can't believe that because I can't believe in miracles. Jesus' miracles are exactly the reason we should believe that he is God. And so as we ask God, why don't you show yourself? God says, I have. We have proof. 
But let me close with uh, one last question. How did God come and show himself? And then why did God come and show himself at all? Was it just to say, look, I exist? And then off he went again. Well, to answer my question, turn with me to page 29. Page 29. Mark chapter 10, the very last line on page 29, the very last verse on page 29. And again, Jesus using this favourite phrase of his, the Son of Man. Do you see it there? Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come? He tells us he came to give his life as a ransom. Jesus came to die for people, for men and women and boys and girls. He came as a ransom. You see, we need this ransom because we've all rejected God. It happened when he came to earth. We demonstrated that we didn't want him by killing him, putting him on a cross. And to a greater or lesser extent, we all reject him in our lives today as well. And for that, we deserve to be ignored by God. Worse, we deserve to be punished by God. But he loves us. And as we look at Jesus, we see that he is the most loving man who ever lived. We see that God is kind and compassionate and forgiving and gracious. Strong and powerful, but remarkably compassionate. And although we've rejected him, although we deserve nothing of God's love and kindness, Jesus came into this world to die for our sin, for our rebellion against him, to take the punishment that our rejection of him deserves and to repair our relationship with God so that we might not only know that God exists, but actually know God, have a relationship with God. The most fulfilling thing we can ever have because as we considered yesterday, he is the meaning of life. And Jesus came to die to bring us into a perfect relationship with him for all eternity. For he not only died but rose again, as we considered on Monday. He came to tell us that heaven is real and to get us there when we die. So the great news of Jesus is that you can not only know that God exists, but that you can know this God. The most powerful and yet the most loving one in the universe the most just and yet the most forgiving one in the universe, the unique God and yet the one who embraces all who will turn to him. You can know this God and not only know him in this life, but for all eternity. Well, thanks very much for listening. I'm going to hand back now uh, to Tim.